Welcome to the Better Call Daddy Show, the number one podcast where we admit no matter what happens, daddy has the advice we need to fix our problems. Introducing my dad, Mr. Wayne Friedman. That was good. It would be nice if you could also sing a song. What would the song be? You love Paris in the springtime. I just made up some words to it. I love Rena in the springtime. I love Rena in the fall. <laughs> That's right. That's good enough. <laughs> oh boy. Let's dive in. Introducing Alex Jewell. He's an organ transplant survivor, and his new organ helped him become a better food blogger. Alex, welcome. I hear you now. You hear me now? Okay. I do. Do you have a mic? Sounds pretty yeah. good. Dang, you even have the <laughs> pop filter. Yeah. <laughs> As if I'm ever going to have like a serious podcast, but now I'm on one. And so the mic that I have has finally come in handy because otherwise it's just been in like meetings for work and that's such a waste of a good mic. <laughs> so I want to talk to you about getting new organs. Yes. I uh, <laughs> had to get some new hardware about a year ago. It was definitely a journey, especially at my age. I'm 28, going to be 29 in October. So in your 20s, you're not sitting around like waiting for that day when you're like, you know what, I'm going to get new organs next month. <laughs> but I had type 1 diabetes for about 20 years. Just the predisposition to it, the destruction of just having like blood sugar is just a little bit out of whack for long enough. At some point, your body's like, you know what, <laughs> that's too much sugar for too long. But and I was even pretty healthy in high school. I was a competitive half marathon runner. It was pretty healthy for most of my life. And even then, diabetes still sort of just being a little bit out of control caused a whole slew of, <laughs> of problems. What was it like finding out that news? Well, in some ways, I had been in denial. They call kidney disease a silent disease, but there's still like a lot of sort of warning signs that you blow off, especially as a you know 20-some-year-old. Your body kind of lets you know things aren't perfect. And so like I would chalk it up to, oh, I'm like eating too much for Instagram. <laughs> like I don't feel great. I haven't ran in a while. I always had like some reason of like why I like didn't feel great every time I ate or like when I started having swelling, for example. I don't know what I was thinking. Like, I was just like, well, this is weird. <laughs> but I didn't take it seriously, yet. even to the point where I ended up in the hospital because I was sitting through work and I started feeling delirious. I had no clue what, what people were saying to me, what was going on. I like had this piercing headache and I just like, I have to go home. I don't even know what people are saying. I don't know what's going on around me. Just like a complete detachment. Like I was experiencing it, but I had no clue what was happening. I couldn't track it. So I went home and tried to lay down. I couldn't get comfortable. I'm like, something's really wrong. So I go to the hospital thinking my blood sugar is low. And they're like, no, your blood sugar is fine. They're like, but your potassium levels are like through the roof and your kidneys are struggling. It can cause delirium and stuff. So they said, we're going to try to get your kidneys back in order. We don't know what happened. So even then, nobody knew that I was in acute failure. They're like, oh, your kidneys are just something. Maybe you have like a kidney infection or something's wrong. Even knowing I was type 1 diabetic at my age, they're like, no, nah, it's, not, <laughs> it's not kidney disease. It's not kidney failure. I stayed in the hospital for a few days. I got fluids. I got my sodium and potassium levels back normal. And I still was like in denial. I was like, I don't think there's anything seriously wrong. I just have to be a little bit more cognizant maybe of like where my blood sugar is. And I got in touch with an endocrinologist at Rush and she was awesome, but she ran some more blood tests and she was like, listen, you're in kidney failure. Your creatinine has dropped even more since like a week ago when I was in the hospital. She's like, you need to go to the ER right now. And I was like, I can't because I'm going to Israel tomorrow <laughs> for 10 days. So 
I was like, hey, it's been nice to meet you, and I like appreciate the info, <laughs> but we'll talk in 10 days when I get back. So I left <laughs> the country for work, and I went to Israel for 10 days in acute kidney failure. My kidneys just, over days, just losing percentages. Like just, I was swollen up like a balloon in Israel, just walking everywhere in the heat and just eating everything full of salt. Like, and I loved it. My favorite trip I've ever been on, even though I was miserable. <laughs> I could have died. But yeah, I got back, got my stuff under control. She got me with a nephrologist and I was able to get things under control until I got a transplant. But that moment was like crazy to really like realize like, oh my God, like this is real. Did you still go on a camel ride? No. <laughs> I didn't do the camel ride. I wasn't even allowed to go to Jerusalem at all. Like our company didn't have the insurance for us to like go to Jerusalem. So I had to pretend like I was doing something else. And I took a half day and I just went there anyway. But I really went there for the food. So I only had enough time. I had like a Malawach sandwich. I had I like found some things in Jerusalem that I like knew were the best there. And then I literally had to take a, uh, I think it was called a get. It's like, it's like a app there that's like Uber. And I took that all the way back. And then I still expensed it. Nobody asked any questions, but it was like, <laughs> it was a super expensive ride. So yeah, I pulled it off. Did you make it to the Dead Sea? No, I didn't get to the Dead Sea. How about the Western Wall? Yeah, yeah. I actually have a selfie. I have a selfie from the Western Wall. And I remember getting there and I just felt so sick at that moment. And the picture is me, like, my head kind of looking down. I was wearing the yarmulke you have to wear. And it's just, like, me looking so beat down and, like, tired. But I was so happy to be there. So it's, like, that picture has so much emotion in it. Because, you know, it's, like, all of those experiences, it's not just me being in Israel. It's not just me being at the, at the wall. It's, like, all the other things that were happening at the same time, like, in one picture. It sounds like a pretty holy experience. Yeah, I mean, I'm not a spiritual person, but I think like from the perspective of how much history is there, my family is evangelical. They're the good kind, though. <laughs> my parents keep getting larger Biden signs and larger Black Lives Matter signs in the yard because people keep stealing them. So I grew up in that environment, but my dad actually knows Hebrew. He studied Hebrew in the Navy when he was stationed in Spain. It's pretty much all I know about it. And then my wife is Jewish too. So I've like kind of ended up around it a lot of my life. And so even though I'm an atheist now, I like love, I think like Jewish culture is one of those things where it, it, it isn't just a spirituality. There's like a depth to all of it. And so that's why you see even a lot of like atheistic Jews who like have this very, there's so much identity in it still that like people are, can be really proud of and that like, you know, that I really enjoy sort of being an outsider to and, and getting to be close to it. I mean, there's just a lot of complexity in one trip for sure. Have your parents been to Israel? No, but my, my grandparents have. How did your parents handle your being diabetic from an early age? I think better than a lot of people would have. It wasn't new to our family. Type 1 diabetes is genetic and they're finding more and more that more people in families that have it are getting it. So it's just growing so exponentially. My aunt had died in 2008 from kidney failure related to a kidney she had for 23 or 24 years. She was waiting for the next one and she passed away from it. So like everybody in the family with both diabetes and then the kidney failure had already like been through, <laughs> you know, they, nobody was like shocked or like, oh, we haven't been through this before. There was a difference in terms of like how young I was. People kind of knew the ropes. They kind of, <laughs> they, everybody had been there before. 
I'm so sorry about your aunt. That's really hard. Yeah. I mean, it's these autoimmune disorders are something that families deal with. You know, there's like sometimes you get one person who gets sick or something and everybody kind of learns about it and deals with it. But when it's like these autoimmune disorders where entire members of, you know, multiple members of families are dealing with the same thing and it's growing more and more in our society, it's something that the whole family kind of deals with in a different way. Can you talk about how it's affected your family? Some of it's funny, you know, like growing up in a family full of diabetics, you know, you've got like diet sodas at every family event, like everybody's trying to figure out ways to take sugar out of things, you know, it's, (laughs) everybody whips out their blood testing meters at the same time, and when you get a new pump, you're like showing it off to the other diabetics in your family, you know, it becomes like part of your family culture, like everybody's diabetic, and anybody who isn't probably will be soon, you know, and it's like, (laughs) so it's definitely, it becomes sort of the part of the fabric of, you know, your family history of like people who may have passed away from it, And it becomes the fabric of the current state of like, oh, did you hear so-and-so got it? You know, it's like, it's a big deal. You know, it sort of becomes something that people always talk about and that everybody's aware of. Were you ever self-conscious about having to wear a pump? No, I thought it was kind of cool. There's two sides to this. Like the one side is I thought it was pretty cool and I like owned it. But the other side was I didn't want to be a part of like the diabetic kid culture, which is like, you do every JDRF walk and <laughs> you wear like the t-shirts with the shoes on it. You go to like diabetes camp in the summer. I was never that kid that was like, I really want to be part of like the diabetes club. <laughs> I didn't want it to define me, right? Like I thought it was cool to like be like, hey, this is something I deal with. Here's this cool technology that I wear. For me, it was always about the science part of it that I was proud to talk about. And maybe that's like the nerd in me that was like, <laughs> check this thing out. It's like test my blood sugar every six minutes and puts it on my phone. But until I got sick, I really didn't have any desire to give back in any way. I didn't want to be involved in the community at all. And as soon as I got really sick, I realized like there are kids who are dealing with this alone, you know, that don't have the family or support that I have and they don't have the good insurance. They don't have the access to everything. So that's when I got involved with JDRF, which is the Junior Diabetes Research Foundation. And so I started helping with their walks and just like giving back. And I found like a bunch of great friends through it. And that's been super rewarding to be able to like go through what I've gone through, no longer have diabetes, amazingly, to now be able to pour that energy, this this newfound energy that I have into an organization that helps those kids who don't have any of the things that I had. Sounds to me like you joined the Diabetes Club. (laughs) I did, yeah. (laughs) I'm chair of the Diabetes Club now. (laughs) Yeah, and I don't even have diabetes anymore. I love that. That's awesome. So talk to me about what it's like going through an organ transplant. First, like before the transplant, there's huge lifestyle changes that have to occur. Especially as a food blogger, you're following an extremely strict diet. And most people didn't even know. Jordan, my own wife, we met, I was in kidney failure. And she, I forgot to tell her. (laughs) She didn't know. And that's how well I kind of, I didn't, I wasn't hiding it. Like, you know, we kind of talked about it. I wasn't ashamed of things, but I didn't want it. I didn't want people to think about me as the kid who had diabetes or as the kid who was in kidney failure especially. I wanted to be like the food blogger when I was at restaurants and I want, you know, whatever I was doing, I wanted to be the successful thing that I was doing. I didn't talk about it a lot, but you make major diet changes. You know, it's like not eating as much potassium. There's like certain things that are high in phosphorus, like seafood. Every time I ate seafood, I felt like I was going to die. I threw up like immediately. So there's a lot of things that were just making me sick that I had to kind of cut out. And I was able to hold off on dialysis. Most people end up in dialysis 
But even though I had like between eight and 12% kidney function, and they normally force you on dialysis at 15, because I started following such a strict diet, I was even making my own bread for a minute just to remove sodium. I didn't need to go on dialysis because all of my blood levels were normal enough, despite the fact my kidneys weren't working really. At my age, they were like, you know what, if you feel fine most of the time and you're able to function, we're not going to force you in dialysis because that causes a lot more problems long-term. So it's not really a sustainable treatment option. So the goal was literally just to like hold off and hope that I got a transplant in time before I needed dialysis. It was super lucky because I was very close. Yeah, but going through the actual transplant is, I was very naive. Every other surgery that I had when I was a kid, I bounced back. You know, it's like, oh, this sucks, but in a couple days I'll be running around. I was just thinking back to like adenoids being taken out and ear tubes and just like, I never had like a serious surgery. So I had no clue what I was going to feel like. It completely took me off guard. The complete feeling of helplessness, like in the moment of my body's not working, I have these new organs, but like, I don't know when I'm going to feel okay. You know, I don't know when I'm going to feel normal again with with these new organs. Like, are these working? Am I like, okay, do I, am I ever going to, you know, have the energy that I had again? Are these new drugs that I take to prevent my body from attacking the new organs? Are they just going to constantly make me shake? And, you know, because your body's adapting to these, all of this new stuff at once. And they're powerful drugs that you take. It's a pretty horrendous process. There was like a few days there where I just sat in the dark. Like I just like shut down as a person. And Jordan's like superwoman because she was running her business, working full time, dealing with me <laughs> and like the terrible mood that I was in. I didn't want anybody to like talk to me. I was just like sitting in the dark because I was like, for the first time in my life, I was not in control. I had no control over anything. Even when I was sick, I could control the narrative. I can control like what I ate. I knew if I ate something, I wouldn't feel good. And if I didn't eat it, I would feel okay. And this was the first moment where like laying there, I had no clue what the next week was going to look like or the next month or the next six months. Like I had no clue. And I think that was terrifying for somebody like me who's very type A and very in control of everything all the time. Jordan totally is superwoman. And I can't believe you scored her during kidney failure. (laughs) I know. Yeah, she jokes that I conned her because I didn't tell her I was diabetic or in kidney failure. I thought she knew. She found out because I was like, hey, I actually need like a support contact for when I go through my surgery. She was like, what are you talking about? She's like, surgery. And I was like, yeah, for my organ transplant. <laughs> She's like, what? I'm like, yeah, because of my diabetes. She's like, you're diabetic? <laughs> yeah, that was a fun conversation, I'm sure, on her end. I'm sure she didn't really guess that you had diabetes considering you take pictures of food. (laughs) We were in similar circles. So I thought like everybody kind of knew she fell in love with me first. And then I was like, hey, my organs don't work. So can you not eat most of the food that you take pictures of? I can now. Yeah, because now I have the new hardware. So now I have like a normal person's hardware that works, it properly cleans the toxins out, my pancreas responds to new sugar in the blood by creating insulin. So everything works beautifully. The only difference is because I'm so immunosuppressed so to avoid my body from attacking it, I essentially have to follow a pregnant woman diet. So like anything that could potentially have bacteria, like I can't do like a salad bar or like raw anything. So I, I have to avoid like raw sushi, I can't have a medium rare steak, which for me means I'll never eat steak again because I'd sooner die than eat rubbery, overcooked steak. So, and you know, those are minor things like to be able to eat pretty much anything else again and not feel sick after I eat it. I'll take that any day over eating it and just feeling sick every time. There's a little bit of changes, but for the most part, I can eat whatever I want and drink whatever I want to. 
Is there any food that you miss? Yeah, I think sushi. Sushi and steak, for sure. I miss runny eggs. I used to even have like a story highlight just for egg yolks, just bursting and popping and running and dripping. So that's definitely a tough one. Yeah. Talk to me about your food porn photography. It was an accident. (laughs) In 2014, I was working in nightlife just for fun. I was in college. I was working in tech already. And nightlife was just sort of an interesting extension of that. My roommate was out a lot. So we were just out. Instagram was sort of coming into its own. So we were just shooting where we were going. My, a lot of my friends were photographers. It's how we got into clubs a lot is like, we pretend we would bring in like cameras that didn't even have working batteries and pretend we were like photographers for the DJs. We were just taking pictures everywhere. And so I started taking pictures of what we were eating too. And I started posting it. And it was around the same time that people started like leaving big media and mass and following like real people on Instagram. And because I just happened to be in River North, like hitting a lot of these hot spots and posting about it, I had a public account. I was using hashtags, I guess, effectively without knowing it. People I didn't know started following me and I was like, oh my God, like, I don't know these people. Like, why are they following me? They're liking my stuff. And at some point I was like, this is cool. So I started directing my content towards what they were interested in. And it seemed to really be the food content. I love food, I always have. That's how Best Food Alex was born. Talk to me about hashtags, because I seriously don't think I use them effectively. (laughs) Do any of us? It's like watching the stock market. So some hashtags are up some days, sometimes they're down. It depends on these like mass trends of groups of people just moving around. There's like so much complexity to it. It's hard to predict like one day, one hashtag might do really well for you and land your post on like a Discover page. And next day, one other hashtag you use might bring your whole post out because it's like Instagram's algorithm decides there's too much porn on that one or something and like closes it down and then your whole post gets shadow banned. So it's very hard. Like it's, it's hard to track because Instagram's a black box. You know, there's really no, like no way to know what's going to work and what isn't some days. You can only do so much. It's sort of a, a black magic. Do you put main hashtags when you post it and then comment the rest? Yeah. So I comment the ones that I always post and then in the caption, I put ones that are specific to the post. And I avoid like the largest hashtags because the trick with hashtags is you want to find the ones that are like not so large as you just get lost in it, but they're not so small that it's a waste of one of your 30 spots. So, you know, instead of like doing hashtag burger on a burger post, I might do like hashtag burger day. There's like all these different hashtags that maybe have a few hundred thousand posts in it or 20 or 30K posts in it. And those are sort of the sweet spot of like, these are active hashtags and I'm going to get some organic traffic from it, but they're not like millions of people where within a fraction of a second, I'm already down like, you know, three scrolls. How do you know if you've been shadow banned? The post just fails. Like, especially when you look at the analytics and you see like very small numbers from hashtags, very small numbers from explore, very small numbers from other. But yeah, the biggest red flag is like, you're not getting any organic engagement outside of your own followers. Algorithms have become so complex that they're sort of living beings, right? They're a black box even to the people who created it. They create the algorithms to learn. And it's so alive in how it operates, making its own autonomous decisions. But even when you talk to somebody on Instagram, they're like, yeah, I don't, I don't have a clue like what it's doing. <laughs> if you want your content to do well, post content that people psychologically engage with, you know, and that's bright, large, bold pictures. How has food blogging <laughs> changed during COVID? I think for everybody, it's been different. But what you're seeing is you're seeing a lot more like support for community, support for individuals who 
are struggling with things. And this is for the most part. Obviously, you have the bloggers who have acted like nothing's happened and they're still doing like Hyatt ads <laughs> and stuff. You know, you're like, all right, just pretend like nobody's dying right now. You're, you're cool. And those are always the people like two weeks later who, who are posting stories like, I don't feel good. Like, what do you, what do you think's wrong? <laughs> Where should I get a test? But for the most part, it's been people who have been extremely supportive of communities, supportive of their friends who have been furloughed. I mean, part of blogging is I've met a ton of chefs. I've met a ton of restaurant workers, a, a ton of owners. These are the people who they've supported me the entire time. I've always gotten free food. I've gotten paid. It's been amazing. And I've met some of the hardest working people because nobody goes into restaurant business to be rich. Now it's a chance for a lot of us to give back to those people and like support their side projects that they've had to do and their home cooking and their, you know, their pop-ups and stuff. And so that's been really cool. Like that's been really rewarding to see how people have come together despite how shitty all the stuff is outside. You know, we've really come together. I love that. It's cool how you've been able to throw in your passion in multiple areas. Yeah. The fear of like having a cohesive brand is always when you add to it or you add dimension to it, is it going to resonate with people? Is it going to work? We're in a very critical moment in our culture, in our country. There's a lot of people that need us to like stand up for them, um, use our platforms for things that are that actually mean something in the real world. And I think it goes hand in hand of like standing up to what's broken. And yeah, you can make a joke about it and you can flick it off. But like, what do we do about it? And it's actually worked really well with my brand, you know, because it's an extension of who I am, too. It's very authentic. You have plenty of followers. I think like 32,000 yeah. or something. And they're all organic. <laughs> yeah. I have a lot of followers I'm talked to and I know them just through Instagram. I met a friend who she just had her transplant a couple weeks ago. And I met her through Instagram. She was a follower of mine. And she happened to live in Chicago. And turned out she was also diabetic. She ended up in kidney failure while we were friends and all because of Instagram, you know, so I've met people that way. But at the end of the day, I don't know 99% of my followers. I love that you connected with another organ transplant survivor. Yeah. yeah. Have you connected with the family of the person who you received the organs from? No. So it's not as simple. Like, so you have to go through, there's these organ procurement organizations. They're kind of like nonprofits in a sense. They are essentially sanctioned by the government to moderate the list. The way that you get in touch with the family is you write to that organization, they send it on to the family, and then the family decides if they want to write back. You're told everything about the donor themselves. Like They have to tell you how they died. They have to tell you all medical history, because in order for you to make an informed decision if it's good organs for you, you have to know that stuff. So like I know that my organ donor died getting hit by a CTA bus. So like, those are things that I, you know, that they had to tell me, they had to tell me like he smoked, but that doesn't affect my organs. They had to tell me that he had like knee surgery one time, <laughs> you know? So they like tell you those details, but you don't really know anything about the family. And if you, in order to get in touch with them, you have to write to the organization and they pass it on to them and they decide if they want to write back. My parents did that. My parents had the desire. They really wanted to thank the family. And I held off. I didn't really know what to say to them. And I don't, I think everybody deals with those things differently, right? I didn't really know what I would say to them authentically. I just didn't have the words for it yet. So I like let my parents sort of handle like how they felt with it. And I kind of stayed out of the first, the first draft. <laughs> Have you signed the back of your license? Yeah. Yeah. I'm an organ donor technically, but I don't know, <laughs> I don't know how much. I technically have two pancreases, three kidneys now because they don't take the old ones out. <laughs> None of them would be useful for a, for a donation. Yeah, so some things in my body could be donated, I guess. But yeah, I, I am an organ donor. And there's the title for the episode. 
<laughs> I am an organ donor. <laughs> Is there anything that you'd like to ask my daddy? Do you have a question for your daddy in relation to any of these subjects? I wonder if he's ever known anybody that's had an organ transplant. I have a, yeah. a good friend from growing up who her mom is in need of a kidney right now. And her mm. father gave a kidney to bump her up on the list. He gave to someone mm. else so that right, the, she could try to get a match. The trade. Most people know somebody, I think, that's that's gone through it. Would you feel judgmental oh. towards people that didn't want to give up their organs? That's a good question. Oh. Yes. As long as it's not for like religious or cultural reasons, right? There's a lot of like, especially I think Hasidic Jews, for example, right? They're not, I would expect somebody who has religious reasons for it. But somebody who's like just paranoid or like doesn't care. Yeah, I'd judge them for that. <laughs> 100%. <laughs> I think we should be an opt-out society rather than an opt-in. I think that would fix a lot of problems because many people die waiting for organs. I waited three and a half years. You know, imagine if somebody who's really sick waits seven, eight, you know, sometimes people are waiting seven, eight years. They don't have great insurance. They get on and off of different programs. They get kicked out of some, they can't afford others. And so they're spending 10 years, 15 years of their life on dialysis waiting for something to work out so they can get an organ. That's a problem. We have a major organ shortage. And at some point we're going to be able to 3D print them from your own cells and that'll be great. We don't have that yet. So like people who are, you know, if you're going to die and you don't care, and you just like never, <laughs> you're just like, I don't really care. Then that's a deliberate decision that's like causing people to possibly die, you know? Don't you have to not be fully dead to receive yeah. some organs? Yeah, for the most part. A lot of people who end up being donors, they're, they're essentially just brain dead. You know, it's somebody who like drowned or, you know, they got resuscitated, but like their brain hasn't woken up yet. Or, you know, you're brain dead, but you still have the blood flowing through the organs that blood flow through the organs is very important. And their family is a lot of people are in, in on a decision. The family's in on a decision, teams of doctors and other medical professionals and people from the organ procurement centers, all of those people are part of the decision to terminate the life and then divvy up where the organs go. My surgery is like 650 grand without insurance. And then my medications are like 30K a month. Without insurance, who you're deciding between bankruptcy or death. Like it's a problem. You know, when like, Getting cancer in our country is the number one cause of bankruptcy now. Can you imagine that? That's crazy. Yeah. And I honestly had no idea that they don't take the other organs out. Yeah, it's too much of a, it causes more risk. Well, this has <laughs> been like awesome. Oh my God. I have really enjoyed this conversation. Let people know how they can find you. I am Best Food Alex. My civilian name is Alex Jewell, J-E-W-E-L-L. So you can find me on LinkedIn, anything like that, because I'm a software engineer, work in blockchain. Yeah, feel free to find me, Alex Jewell or Best Food Alex. Thank you so much for sharing your story with me. Of course. Thanks for having me. Have a great night. Let's hear from my daddy. Do you know anybody that's gotten any new organs? Well, we know that Shlomo has had a kidney transplant now twice, and Shlomo got the first one from his mother. It lasted about 10 years. And then his brother, Yankel, gave him one of his kidneys. It's a big, big uh, sacrifice to make. Shlomo has five children. I think one of his uh, daughters and one of his sons, I believe, also would be a match for him. Can you imagine having to give a kidney to your own father? I would. Well, we'll see how this all plays out. But what I like about Alex is that he's got <laughs> really just beautiful humor and goes through life happy no matter what. 
And when he learned about the news that he might desperately need a kidney, he had a trip to go to Israel the next day. He says, hey, I'm going to Israel for 10 days. And the funny part is, or the irony here, is that that trip to Israel was probably the best trip of his whole life. And yet still, if you feel sick or you feel bad, still going on an exciting trip to the promised land is just wonderful. He just doesn't take no for an answer that he still was going to live life to the fullest, no matter what. The company that he worked for wasn't going to allow him to go to Jerusalem. Uh, He figured out, I'm not taking a no for an answer there either. And I'm going to Jerusalem. Those type of people where we don't take no for an answer, that we keep persevering, that we accept that there's a way, that no is not in our vocabulary, that we got to just find the way, even when somebody says no, to figure out a new path. What I liked about Alex also is that after getting this miracle handed to him, he's going to dedicate a large part of his time to helping other people and work with people that have problems with diabetes or with an organ transplant and that he's going to give back. Today's episode is sponsored by Rin 10 Media. If you want to look and sound your best, you want to get in touch with Rin 10 Media. Reach out to info at ren10media.co.za and use the subject line, Better Call Daddy. Now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and tune in. Add Better Call Daddy Podcast on IG at Rena Friedman Watts on LinkedIn.com. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy Show. Yeah. <laughs>